1: Welcome to the Wednesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand Up for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering Bible questions, and questions about other stuff going on in your life. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at CalvarySA.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and everything else is hands-free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, we've got a lot going on tonight. I'm going to be teaching out of Genesis chapter 49. I'm going to do uh, about half the chapter tonight, and then we're going to close out Genesis when we come back from vacation. Uh, But tonight, uh, one of the most remarkable prophecies, uh, chapter 49, in all of Scripture in all of your Bibles. Uh, So tonight, we're going to deal with that. Uh, Tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with us on the day-to-day edition of the show. So that is your day, ladies. If you have any questions or comments that you want to share with Paula, you can call tomorrow. And then, um, I guess that's all. I I do want to remind you that Paula and I are getting ready to go on vacation. And boy, do I need it. I am really, really ready. But, we'll be gone for the next two weeks beginning this coming Monday and we're going to be running a very special series on parenting, uh, a teaching that I did uh, some years ago. Uh, We've always gotten a wonderful response to it uh, and we thought that would be a blessing. We'll see how that works this year. But uh, if you know people who are having uh, parenting issues Uh, Anybody that could be helped or encouraged by it. And it is very encouraging. I think it's it's very direct, but it's very encouraging. Uh, Starting on Monday, uh, we'll air it instead of this live program until we get back uh, on July 3rd. And then July 4th, I think, is a Sunday. July 5th is a holiday. So we'll be back on the 6th of July live uh, in studio. Okay, let's get to questions while we await your phone calls. The phones have been quiet this week, so we'd love to have you participate. This one is from Patricia. Hi, Pastor Ron, I have a question for you. What do you think about when a Christian says that they love a person, but they don't like them? I don't understand this. How can anyone love another but not like them? It doesn't make sense to me. Is this just man's way to deal with the difficult people in our lives? I do not recall Jesus saying, love one another, but it's okay if you don't like them. Thanks, Pastor Ron. Patricia, this is really a difficult um, circumstance, and I'm going to try to make it clear for you because um, we, we, we have to be realistic about uh, other people's lives and the, the, the things that they're doing. Um, we are called as Christians to love everyone. Um, that's hard. Truth is, there's a lot of people out there who aren't lovable, but I've said repeatedly on this program that that's when we have to withdraw by faith. We've got to withdraw that love of God that has been poured out into our hearts. And we are responsible To love people, that's to be sure. Now, the question about liking somebody is entirely different. And you don't have to like someone to love them. I know that doesn't make sense to you, but I hope it makes sense. Because there's a lot of people who are doing really harmful things. Um, I'll just give you an example. Family dynamics is one. You know, you can have uh, an abusive parent and you love them. It's your parent, but you don't like them because what they're doing is causing you pain and inflicting uh, abuse on you. Uh, same thing can happen in a uh, relationship with a husband and wife. It's also true, Patricia, that we can have children. And of course, we love them. They're our kids, but we we can look at the kind of people that they're turning out to be and we don't like them. So the responsibility to love far, far, far outweighs. It trumps any responsibility to like. And I think I'll take it one step further. I think sometimes being honest with somebody and saying, you know what? I love you, but but I don't like the way you're behaving now. I don't like who you've turned into. I don't like your self-centeredness. I don't like the abuse that you're heaping on other people, especially me. Uh, I think that's perfectly normal. Um, I think as Christians, um, to ask somebody to like behavior that is destructive is irresponsible. I think as, a, as somebody who does a lot of counseling, um, I, I, there's just a lot of people that you, you can look at and say, well, well, who would like you when you behave the way you do? So liking someone isn't a prerequisite for loving them. One, we can say, I don't like you now. I don't like who you've become. But at the same time, we recognize the responsibility to love them, to pray for them. And I said in the program this week uh, to another question uh, that, that when, you, when you pray for people, God will give you his heart for them. But that doesn't mean that we've got to like abusive behavior. It doesn't mean that we've got to like uh, the, the, the actions of people who are causing us pain and causing other people pain as well. And I think there's great value, Patricia, in being honest and direct with people. And, and I think, you know, the, the, the way you're living right now is so unlikable that I'm even having a difficult time loving you, but I'm going to keep doing that because God loves you. I think that kind of approach wins people's hearts. But uh, no, you, you don't have to like people. Uh, you, you, you don't have to like the way they're behaving. Uh, but we do have the responsibility to love. Now, I hope, Tricia, that makes sense to you. If it doesn't, please email me a question. I'll try to be a little more specific. But I think we've got to disassociate liking the way somebody is living their lives, liking the way they're behaving, and our responsibility to love them. And one responsibility never goes away. That's the the responsibility to love. Uh, And love demands that we tell them the truth. And sometimes if people are unlikable. um, It's our responsibility to let them know that. So I hope that makes sense to you, Patricia. Thank you for the question. Here's a question from um, Meredith. Meredith says, Do you think it's possible to live sinless? I try, but seem to keep blowing it. Meredith, you keep blowing it because it's impossible. We're stuck in these flesh and blood bodies. And it is absolutely impossible Um, to to live without sinning. I personally don't think that that we can go a day without sinning, but we always want to try. Now, there's always a tension between somebody saying, well, I want to be perfect, but I can't be, so what's the point? Um, The point is pleasing Jesus. And we've got to realize, Meredith, that in our own strength, all we're going to do is sin. If our relationship with Jesus is broken and we don't work hard to fix it, if we don't repent and, 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 and come close to Jesus again, we're going to keep blowing it. But that's our flesh and blood response. You know, the Apostle Paul, in writing to of the Church at Rome, talking about his struggle with sin, and then he says this, he says, I find this law at work. When I sin, it's not me who sins, but sin living in me. Now, he's not escaping responsibility for his sin. But what he's saying is, look, the real me, I don't want to sin. I want to please God every day. But the reality is that this flesh in me, the old me, the old man or the old woman, well, that person keeps on sinning. And that's why John tells us that we can confess our sins, repent, ask God to forgive us, And we're purified from all unrighteousness. We're reconnected to the Lord. And God has an inexhaustible amount of forgiveness. Many, many, many second chances. So you keep trying to live perfectly. We're told in the Bible to aim for perfection. But we can't let the fact that we're going to miss being perfect frustrate us or cause us uh, to, to do guilt or condemnation. We just realize, okay, Lord, I blew it. I didn't want to say those ugly words. I didn't want to lose my temper. I'm so sorry. He says, okay, let's try it all over again. And so, no, it's never going to be possible in this life, Meredith, to live without sinning. But we will sin less and they relative degree of sinfulness will be less and less and we'll become more and more like Jesus. That is the process of sanctification that begins the moment we get saved. It's the process of becoming more and more like Jesus every day. But make no mistake, the Apostle John in First John says, if you say you're without sin, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. So we all sin. The Apostle Paul struggled with it. Um, You know, Peter struggled with it. Every Bible character that that was human, they struggled with sin. And we're going to keep struggling until the day we're with Jesus. You know, Meredith, this is one of the reasons I look so forward to being with Jesus. Because in that moment when we're taken to be with Him, we will no longer have a sin nature. We will see things clearly for the very first time. We won't be tempted to lose our temper. We won't be tempted to, um, um, to, to, to say something or do something that we regret. Sin will be so foreign to us that it will be, just like it was to Jesus, repugnant. And so we'll stay in the presence of the Lord. And I can't wait for that moment because I'm like the Apostle Paul. He says, what I want to do, I can't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing, oh, wretched man that I am. So Mary, take some comfort in knowing that if the Apostle Paul struggles with this, it's okay if you struggle with it. Don't use it as an excuse to sin. But when you do sin, the Bible tells us we have an advocate, the man Christ Jesus. And he's there ever living to make an intercession for us. And all we have to do is repent, ask for forgiveness, and then reconnect to him instantly. And our sin is gone. As far from us as east is from west. It'll come back. Different sins, but we don't have to worry about it. Thank you for the question. Randy asks this. He says, in the millennial reign, will demons and the devil still be on earth? Uh, The answer is no. In the millennial reign, Randy... Um, The demons and the the devil are going to be locked up. They're going to be bound. For a thousand years, there's not going to be uh, any demonic influence. Jesus is going to rule with perfect justice, with perfect righteousness, with a renewed earth, a renewed environment. Um, We, uh, who are Christians, uh, we'll be in our, our glorified, resurrected bodies. Um, there will be billions and billions of people uh, in in human bodies, uh, but um, the devil and the demons will not be given um, any leeway to, to, to cause havoc. Now, what is going to happen, Randy, at the end of the millennial reign, when the thousand years are over, the devil is going to be set free from his prison for just a short time. We don't know what a short time means, but, but the Bible says for a short time. And the reason that he's going to be let loose, he's still going to be serving God uh, reluctantly, uh, under protest. But he's going to be let loose to tempt people again. Because the reality is going to be that everybody who's lived through the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, all the people born in the millennium, uh, are are never going to have to make a choice to serve God in a thousand years service to Jesus is going to be mandatory but at the end after a thousand years of perfection of righteousness of the love of God being poured out over and over he's going to tempt people and the Bible says the number of those he causes to fall are going to be like the grains of sin on the seashore And I think that will prove once and for all that the problem was always man. It wasn't our environment. It wasn't bad breaks. It wasn't that that, uh, we didn't know God loved us. Um, The problem has always been man. We like to sin. That's the reality. And so he'll be let loose for a short time, and then Jesus will put a stop to that. And then the great white throne judgment will occur. Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire. And then everybody who also rejects Jesus Christ will be thrown to the lake of fire forever and ever. Uh, And then perfection, Randy, for eternity, forever and ever and ever, however long that is. So we can look forward to that. Thank you for the question, Randy. Here is a question from Philip. He wants to know, Pastor Ron, are you a cessationist or a continuationist regarding the gifts of the Spirit? Uh, Philip, we are continuationists. That's a mouthful for me to say. Um, But for the audience, a cessationist is somebody who believes that the gifts of the Spirit are no longer for today. Um, A continuationist obviously then conversely believes that the gifts of the Spirit are still useful for today and to be Um, to be practiced by by Christians Um, Philip the Bible is pretty clear the gifts of the spirit are today I'll give you one example the least of all the gifts Paul says I would that you all spoke in tongues more than I do Um, and there's no biblical passage that even remotely suggests that gifts given by God who can't take back the gifts that he's given have suddenly stopped some will use 1 Corinthians 13 by saying, well, when, the, he, or when, when he that is perfect comes or when perfection comes. And they'll say, well, see, the Bible's perfection. So when the Bible came out, uh, the gifts of the Spirit ceased. But perfection there refers to the person of Jesus Christ. So we are a, uh, a charismatic church. We do believe in the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, I think the gifts of the Spirit ought to be exercised in our lives every day. I'll tell you one other thing, Philip, that I think a lot of the people who are cessationists, those pastors who, who teach that uh, any exercise of the gifts at all is demonic and, and blasphemous, heresy. Um, even in their ministries, they're utilizing gifts of the Spirit, the gift of teaching. John MacArthur is a good example. He's a cessationist, and, and he exercises the spiritual gift of teaching. Every time he opens his mouth in church, he's got the Bible open, he's teaching. And for some reason, he says, well, that's not what I'm talking about. He would be talking about the sign gifts, but, but all of the gifts are together. Philip, if you want some more information, we are currently, um, I've done one study, this will be the second study, and I'm actually going to start talking about the individual gifts. This Sunday, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'm going to take a long time to get through uh, chapters 12, 13, and 14, because that's all about the gifts of the Spirit and their use in the body of Christ uh, today. So we are continuationists And we're going to continue to operate in the gifts of the Spirit. Thank you, Philip. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an interesting question from Raymond. He says, do you believe that Ananias and Sapphira are in hell? You know, Raymond, I've gone back and forth on this uh, over the years. Uh, The short answer is we don't know. Uh, We don't know. Uh, I believed uh, at the beginning when studying um the gifts of the spirit or no, I'm sorry not the gifts of the spirit but but studying the, the the particular situation with Ananias and Sapphira that they were fake believers and um the problem with that is um um there's no nothing that suggests that i think they they were believers i've i've come around to the position where i believe that they were believers who sinned against god in such a a, a, a terrible way that God judged them. The price for their sin was physical death. But I actually believe now, Raymond, that Ananias and Sapphira are in heaven and we will be able to uh, to see them and we'll love them because we're going to love everybody in heaven. Um, but there's no real way, Raymond, to know for sure. No real way to know for sure at all. I think they're an example of First John uh, where he says there is a sin that leads to death. I think uh, their sin was was a sin that leads to death. And I think the seriousness of it um, revolves around this was the first attack in God's new, holy, pure, sincere church. This was the first attack from within the church. And I think God is, uh, in their death, is sending a message to the generations that will come after them Um, until jesus returns that he is that serious about hypocrisy we can't keep secrets we can't have bad motives Uh, I, i think that he's saying everything that's done in my name and through my church needs to be done with the right heart i think if we would take that lesson i think we'd be a lot better off thank you for the question i appreciate it very very much here is a question from our mobile app from Scott. He says, "Could you extrapolate first Corinthians one seventeen There seems to be a degree of difference in priority between baptizing and evangelizing or preaching." Uh, let me read the passage, First uh, Corinthians one seventeen. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the Christ cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Yes, yeah, Scott, this is pretty straightforward, and and you have to remember the context. Paul is talking about divisions in the church. This is some people are saying, well, I am a of Paul, I follow Apollos, some say I follow Peter and some say well I don't follow any man I follow Christ and the whole deal there is is, is he's saying look these differences don't matter and Paul is saying because of your petty differences I'm happy I didn't baptize anyone. He says, you know, I I baptized no one but the household of, and he mentions a couple of people that he baptized. He said, if I baptized any more than that, I didn't know it. And what he's saying is that that to, to side with a human instead of just being with and for Jesus is a disaster. Now, this is a passage, however, Scott, that, um, responds to those who say that baptism is necessary for salvation. Uh, at the end of this point in the verse that you quoted, he said, uh, if, if baptism was important he said, but, but Christ didn't send me to baptize. I'm here to preach the gospel. That's my job. And if baptism was required for salvation certainly the Apostle Paul would have said, for Christ sent me to baptize and to preach the gospel. And what he's saying is, look, this isn't about men. This isn't about people. So that's all that is. Um, there's, it, the, the priority is getting people saved. Paul's calling as an apostle, an evangelist, as a preacher, a pastor, was to get people saved. Uh, he knew the body of Christ would take care of the baptisms. But this idea that you have to be baptized to be saved or like baptism completes the, the act of salvation or the gift of salvation, that is a complete misnomer. So that's what's going on there, and it's all in the context of Paul setting the stage for this letter of correction, this letter of rebuke to the carnal Christian church. Good question, Scott. Thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. we had an anonymous question called into the studio. Um, Did the rabbis in Jesus' day consider him a heretic? Uh, Yeah, they they would have considered him a heretic. I don't think that's the the word they would have used anonymous. But they considered him a false prophet. Um, Remember, their hearts were far from God. Jesus said that over and over and over. They recognized Jesus' authority in teaching. They they recognized his gift to teach. Um, They recognized the miracles that he did. Um, But the real problem is that the rabbis in Jesus' day, um, they didn't believe that the, the Christ, when he came, would be concerned about sins or sinners. They thought when the Christ came, in fact, Jews still believe this today, practicing Jews still believe today that when the Christ comes, he will rescue Israel and deliver them from bondage to other nations' control. And they will once again be set up in their homeland uh, as the apple of God's eyes, the people of God. And Jesus, of course, told them repeatedly, repeatedly, that they were misunderstanding the passages of Scripture. Um, uh, Jesus would tell them, uh, I've come for something far greater than deliverance from Rome. I've come to deliver you from yourselves. I've come to deliver you from sin. But we also need to remember that in Jesus' day, those rabbis were living pretty high on the hog. Especially the higher up, when you get to the high priests and the Sanhedrin, um, the, the scribes, the teachers of the law. They, they were the Pharisees. They were men and women, or men rather, who, who uh, lived very privileged lives, they and their families. And they didn't want their way of life. To be disturbed. And Jesus, of course, came to turn everything. Uh, they would have said upside down. I always say Jesus came to turn everything right side up. So yeah, they would believe him to be a heretic. The, the apostle Paul, when he was Saul of Tarsus, um, said he was zealous, but his zeal was not based in knowledge. Um, and he had to meet Jesus to admit that he was wrong. So that's the answer. Good question, Anonymous. Hey, another half hour with no phone calls live. We'd love your calls, 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes.
0: the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh
1: welcome back to the second half hour 340-9585 here is a question from lisa she says i have a co-worker who says he wants to party in hell is there any way to get through to him? Um, Lisa, you can get through to him. You can share. You can You can be a good witness. You can let your light so shine before men, even men like this one, or a woman like this one. No, oh, it's a he, you said. Um, but only the Holy Spirit can get through to him. You just keep telling him about Jesus. Um, the idea that there's a party in hell is absolutely ridiculous. And maybe that's one of the things that you can can approach him with the next time he says something that's so offensive like that. You can say, what makes you think there's a party in hell? Hell is going to be suffering forever and ever and ever in the deepest, darkest place you can possibly imagine. In fact, you can't imagine it. What makes you think there's going to be a party in hell? And, uh, and pray for him. Um, you know these are people with really hard hearts and the more they take this approach the hearts get harder and harder you know Lisa uh, it's been some years ago now I did a funeral uh, a, a friend a, a guy that used to work for me before I was saved um, uh, his son was murdered he was in a motorcycle gang and his son was murdered and he called me and asked me to do the funeral and uh, uh, of course I said I would um, so I went out, and I was shocked at what I found. Motorcycle gang guys were all around the place, and everybody's talking about uh, his name was Daryl, Little Daryl, partying in hell kind of thing. And I remember at the at the funeral, um, the casket that Daryl was laid in was um, the flames of hell. And and I remember thinking, my goodness, I knew this kid when he was small, growing up. And, and I just thought, what happened to this kid? And his mom and dad were professing Christians, and he has other um, relatives who are professing Christians, and and, and and why are they allowing this? And I remember um, after people talked, you know, at funerals I do, I like to give people a chance to share comments and stories. It always helps people um, grieve a little bit. And um, um, person after person came up and, and said uh, things like, oh, little Daryl's partying in hell. Daryl, get the party started. And just this went on for maybe 20 minutes. And so when I went up, when they were done, and and uh, I just said, basically, I said, you guys should be ashamed of yourselves. You know better than this. You drape his casket in the flames of hell. You have no understanding of how deep that is. And... Um, it got really quiet in there. I can promise you that. But um, basically I say the same thing I told them. There's no party in hell. There's only torment. And if Daryl was here today, he would tell you it's real. Heaven is real. Hell is real. And you need to give your heart to Jesus Christ. So Lisa, just keep telling them. Just keep telling them. There's nothing you can do. Let your witness uh, be a light and keep telling them and keep praying for them. It's It's sad. Anonymous says, how can David be considered a man with God's heart? Um, David did some bad things, didn't he, Anonymous? Well, um, we all do. Everybody except Jesus did some bad things. The Apostle Paul certainly had God's heart. He was a man that was responsible for murder. Uh, Peter um, denied Jesus publicly. And he certainly was a man after God's own heart. David... um, We need to remember a couple things about David, and and I I, I get some flack when I say this, but David did not have the Holy Spirit like you have, Anonymous, or like I have. Uh, David didn't have the power necessarily to resist sin. He did some terrible things, but that's what we do apart from the Holy Spirit as humans. So David sinned, but every time David sinned, it broke his heart. I mean, literally, it broke his heart. David was... I think the best repenter in the world. Uh, I think you can read his psalms, his penitent psalms, uh, especially Psalm fifty-one, and and uh, you see the man who's got a heart for God. He he blew it, he disappointed God, he broke God's heart, but because he did, he wanted to fix it. Against thee and thee only have I sinned, O God. He said, he understood the gravity of sin. He never tried to escape responsibility for his sin. And I think that's why he's described as a man after God's own heart. He wanted to to please God. And when he didn't, he was quick to repent. And he changed. He did some terrible things. David, by the way, was a terrible dad. And yet he was still a man after God's own heart because he really wanted to please God. And we get that heart it's poured out to us in many, if not most, of the psalms that David wrote. Thank you for the question. Our next question comes from Mark. He says, can you explain the difference between being baptized in the Spirit, slain in the Spirit, and filled with the Spirit? Um, Mark, let me, let me take the one in the middle out. Being slain in the Spirit is rank heresy. There's nothing biblical about it. Um, it it's this... Silly practice of of having a preacher or somebody touch us and push us over and we fall down and we can't move because the Spirit's got such a hold on us. That is a, a, an extra biblical practice that has no value at all and no place in the life of a Christian or a Christian church. If you are going to a church, Mark, where they're telling you that people are being slain in the Spirit and you're watching this ridiculous display go on, then you're in a really, really bad church and you need to change. So slain in the Spirit is unbiblical. We'll take that out. Now, being baptized in the Spirit and filled with the Spirit are pretty much the same thing. People use different terms. I just taught on this briefly in our study in First Corinthians 12 this past Sunday, and I told our church that if you want to operate in the gifts of the Spirit you must have the power of the Holy Spirit so you must have the experience of being filled with the Spirit or being baptized in the Spirit. And I think they're just two different terms to explain the same thing. It is an experience where the power of God comes upon you. When you're saved Mark, the Spirit of God comes and lives in you. He is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance in heaven. You're as saved as you're ever going to be the minute you're born again. But there is a subsequent experience uh, where, where, where power comes upon you. It is often accompanied by manifestations of gifts like tongues or, or even the use of the gift of prophecy. Um, sometimes it's described as being very emotional. I've had friends of mine describe it as like tidal waves of love washing over them. Um, I've had other friends who described it as being so aware of two things: their their own sinfulness and God's holiness. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon you in power. This is an experience mark that every Christian needs to have. And I'm going to take it one step further. This is an experience that we all need to have daily. We can't leave home without the power of the Holy Spirit. And the key to that, of course, is obedience. God gives the Holy Spirit, verse, chapter 5, verse 32 of Acts says, to those who obey Him. And then that power is available, and everything we do then is done in the power of the Spirit, instead of trying to do things in our own strength. So, Mark, whatever you call it, being baptized in the Spirit or filled with the Spirit, it doesn't matter, just get it. Let me also refer you to the message that I did Last Sunday, you can go to calvaryessay.com and uh, listen to it or watch it. And then um, uh, I'm going to continue talking about the gifts of the Spirit. But in order to function, authentically function in the gifts of the Spirit, you must be baptized in the Spirit. So, this is an experience that you cannot neglect. Thank you for the question mark. Cindy, on line one, Cindy, thanks for being our only caller today so far. You're on the air. Well, hi, Pastor Ron. I I, I kind of have a, I think I have a question in here,
0: but the wind kind of got taken out of my sails thinking about a thousand years. That's a really, really long time to wait for heaven. So where my question sort of is, is that we get raptured and we go up to heaven.
1: Now, after this thousand years, Heaven totally changes too, I guess, but going back to being raptured and, and being up there, and then we come back down here and and we're and we stay down here for a thousand years or, or are we going to have access to getting to go back up to heaven and hang out and then come back down here and hang out you know for those thousand years so <laughs> that's sort of, i I hope that makes sense I'll it, does, it. Yeah. it does <laughs> indeed. Thank you very much. You know, a couple of things we have to understand about, about being in heaven with Jesus is our human logic, our earthly logic, isn't going to going to make any sense to us. Um, um, you know, we think, boy, heaven, now I'm stuck back on earth. But see, when we get to heaven, we're going to find out that heaven is being where Jesus is. Heaven is just being where he is. And if, if we're with him... And that's heaven um, when we're back here with him, fulfilling scriptures, uh, uh, fulfilling prophecy, then, then that's going to be heaven here. So it's, it, being with Jesus where he is in our glorified, resurrected bodies, we're not going to have these questions. We're not going to sit around on earth and saying, oh man, I, I wish I was in heaven. I got another 975 years to go. Uh, we're not going to be like that because we're going to be like he is. And we're also going to be given work to do, Cindy. And you know what's going to happen? Time's going to fly. We think time flies here. Imagine when we're outside of time. That that thousand year here is nothing. The Bible says in God's economy, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. There's no difference to God. So we will be with Jesus, and when we're with Jesus, we don't need anything or anyone else, and we won't look at things from the same perspective at all. When these sin natures are gone, Cindy, everything is going to make sense, and Jesus will be teaching us. We will rule and reign with Jesus, whatever that means. So there will be fruitful work, and uh, we will be ruling and reigning over those uh, in the millennium who are in flesh and blood bodies, and we'll understand that this is what we were born to do. This is our work. You know, just as I say often on this program, uh, I got the best job in the world. I know I'm doing exactly what God created me to do. I'm doing it exactly where he wants me to do it. Imagine how much more certain we'll all be of that when we're ruling and reigning with Jesus. So I think we've, we've got to, when we look, look at these questions from an earthly perspective, we have to understand the, the built-in shortcomings that we're all going to have regarding um, how we view those things. Everything is a whole new order of things. And the same thing will be true when we're done here on earth, a new heaven, new earth will come and, and we'll be with Jesus forever and ever and ever, and we'll go between the new heaven and the new earth, and we'll um just just constantly uh being having the the mysteries of the universe unfolded to us. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, worshiping, sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning, just being where He is. I don't think we're going to have any problem at all that the time goes by too slow or too fast. Thank you. Appreciate the call, Cindy. Here is um, one from our email inbox from Nacho. Uh, A comment on Psalm 1027 where it says, The fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. Looking at the former part of the verse in a broader view, It appears that living a long life seems to be what we want as we may benefit from the many blessings God can and has bestowed on us. However, today we continually say, come quickly, Lord. Our cry is the obvious. We do not want to stay in the crazy world any longer than we have to. Paul himself even shared this exact desire. In Philippians one twenty three, when he longs to go to heaven rather than stay on earth, how do we apply those desires of a long life today? I don't think it's so much the the desires for a long life. I think um, Nacho, um, that's just a promise. Um, the the the, and these are general truths. This is a poetic form of of Hebrew writing. Um, those that fear the Lord are going to live longer because they're going to be obedient. There's going to be less stress. Their life is going to be sweeter and richer. And the years of the wicked are cut short because they're 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 cutting those days short themselves with their wickedness. Sin costs a lot. And sin really, in, in fact, um, kills us more quickly. So uh, I don't think this is David saying, I want a longer life. I, I think... What I said to Cindy a moment ago is, for us, the fullness of life is what we want. And when we're with Jesus, um, that's the fullness of life. I say come quickly, and I say that all the time. Uh, I expect Jesus could come at any moment, and and that's not quick enough for me. But I say come quickly, Lord, not because I want to get out of this crazy world. This crazy world gives me life with meaning and purpose here, this crazy world, is the object of my ministry. I say, come quickly, Lord, because I want to see Him. I want to see Him. I did a study, the Revelation study that I did last Friday night, and I'm not sure I, I'm. You know, when when John turned around and saw Jesus, I said. That was the first time in more than 60 years that John, the self proclaimed disciple whom Jesus loved, laid eyes on the lover of his soul. On earth, John never let Jesus get away from him. He's always found with his head on his chest. They've always sat next to him. He was the youngest and obviously the quickest of the disciples. He just was always where Jesus was. Imagine when he saw him in that vision on the Isle of Patmos. What it was like when he heard that voice, when Jesus' hand actually touched him and he turned around and he saw that face shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. Nacho, that wasn't John wanting to get out of the world. That was John just wanting to see Jesus. So let's separate those two thoughts. The reality is is that those who fear the Lord are going to live longer. Richer, fuller lives, generally speaking. Um, and generally speaking, those who oppose God are going to their days are cut short because it's it's a hard life to rebel against God. But it is also true that we want to make use of every moment we have here, all the while still desiring the presence of God. So I've got work to do. Um, I was asked last week about retirement. I'm not ready to retire, uh, but, but let me tell you something. If Jesus calls his church home today, there'd be no complaints from me about unfinished work. We need to be occupying until he comes. We need to be all about our Father's business. We need to be a light for Jesus in this dark world, and if we'll do those things, then when we see him, and he looks at us with that voice that sounds like many rushing waters, and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Nothing else will matter. And that's what John is saying in Revelation. That's what David is referring to here. We want to live a long time, but we want to live a fruitful life. Now, let me also say that it would be naive of me to suggest that there aren't people who just want to get out of this crazy world. But that's the wrong perspective. I think that's one of the reasons people sort of get... Um, rapture weary you know um, for 2,000 years you've been saying he's coming where is this coming Uh, things go on as they have before Peter says and then he says but God is not patient I mean God is not slack concerning his problems he's patient unwilling that any should perish so um, yeah I look forward to being in a world that's perfect this world certainly isn't but mostly it's just being with Jesus That's going to make things perfect. And certainly the loss of our humanity, our sin nature as well. hope that makes sense, Nacho. Thank you for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Anonymous. Uh, I like Charles Stanley, but I just found out he was divorced. Um, Charles Stanley was divorced though, decades ago now I think probably more than twenty years or close to twenty years. Uh, I, I I I love Charles Stanley, anonymous. I, I listen to him regularly. Um, I so admire a man who, as he's aged, has remained faithful and passionate. Um, I actually like listening to Charles Stanley's messages better now. He's in his late 80s, I think 87 or something, um, than than when he was younger. Uh, But I just love watching a man grow old and not lose his passion for the Lord. And and not only that, but Charles Stanley has served so faithfully without um, a hint of scandal. Uh, He served faithfully for... For, for 60 years uh, serving God and he's still just excited for the opportunity as he was every day. Now, in his particular case, you're right, he was divorced but his wife left him. He didn't do anything wrong. His wife just decided the pressure got to her. Who knows what happened but um, this is a, a good warning for all of us to watch our relationships at home uh, and treasure them and, and nurture them. Uh, but, Charles Stanley's wife or Charles Stanley's wife left him. Um, he was given no choice in the matter. It's certainly not something he wanted. It was uh, an absolute devastation to him, but he was a victim in the process, and um, God never punishes a victim, and so uh, he's divorced. I don't know anonymous whether he's remarried. I don't think he has in all these years, but he has certainly remained faithful to Jesus Christ, and that's really all we need to know. Keep listening to him you'll 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 be blessed. Again, I just as I'm getting older and I see a man like that, I, I look at Charles Stanley and I think, "Lord, might, might I have 17 more years?" If I do, I sure hope I finish as well as he's finishing. Thank you. Bob says Pastor, on, I've been praying for something for a long time and I haven't got it yet. Should I keep praying or give up? Um, Bob, Jesus told a parable, a parable about the persistent widow. And the whole point of the parable is that we ought always to keep praying and never give up. So, So keep on praying, never give up. Jesus couldn't have made it any more clear. Now, often when we're praying for something and we don't get it for a long time, then we've got to... Really examine our hearts. What What's our motive for praying? First, what is it that you're praying for? And what's your motive? If you're praying for something that is uh, carnal, a carnal desire, if you're praying for uh, something that will make your life better or easier, um, that's probably an inappropriate prayer that God can't answer. So here's what you do. You pray for this thing. And the Bible says it with with thanksgiving. In other words, with a grateful heart, we can make our request known to God. There's nothing that you can ask God as long as your heart is grateful. But you also have to be able at the end of that period to say, nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done. And I suspect, Bob, that if you would examine your motives for wanting this, is this something you want for you, or is it something you want that will bring God glory? And when you determine the answer to that question, I think you're probably going to find out that, God has answered your prayer. It's just not the answer that you want. We tie answered prayer to results, favorable results, and we ought not to do that because um what's favorable or what appears to be favorable to us often isn't favorable at all. Often it's just the lord who 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 is protecting us i I believe with all of my heart, Bob. Then when I get to heaven, I'm going to be ultimately more grateful for the prayers God didn't answer, did not answer, than the prayers that he did. And I'm going to find out just how comprehensive his protection over me, his care and love for me really was. Because he's going to keep me from getting things that would cause me to fall away from him or things that would cause me to to think too highly of myself. And those are the ones, I think, that, that we're going to be more grateful for when we get to heaven than any of the prayers that we had answered. So examine your heart. James says we have not. One reason is because we ask not. That's not your problem. But because we ask amiss, the King James says, or because we ask with the wrong motives. So examine your heart. Is this something you can say, Lord, I'm going to love you and I'm going to thank you no matter what. If you give it to me or don't give it to me, if this prayer never gets answered, I love you with every ounce of being I have. And if you can say that, then prayers are going to get answered. But is this prayer for you or is this prayer really for the Lord? Good question, Bob. Thank you. Hey, we are out of time today. Paula will be live in studio with me. On the date day edition of the program tomorrow, tonight I'm going to be teaching um, one of the two or three most remarkable chapters of prophecy in all of Scripture, Genesis chapter 49. Hope to see you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then.
0: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh.